0: The Bentville Film Festival's been on our bucket list for years. Um, I mean, the festival has such renown, rightfully so, it's an incredible festival. Uh, We're having a great time. What a strange, beautiful little town.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 86 of Arthouse Garage, the snob free film podcast where we make arthouse, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I am your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are back from summer hiatus with a very special episode all about the 2022 Bentonville Film Festival. The Bentonville Film Festival, or BFF as it is sometimes called, is one of the biggest film festivals in Arkansas, and it was my first time attending in person. I've got film reviews, filmmaker interviews, event coverage, and more. Stick around. Before we get into the show, a quick plug for our Patreon. If you like what you hear and you want even more, you can get bonus episodes, extended episodes, video episodes, and ad-free episodes all by subscribing to our Patreon. And not to mention, it really helps out the show financially as well. And a new bonus I'm very happy to announce, patrons can now get 15% off in the Arthouse Garage web store where we have all kinds of cool cinema-themed t-shirts, coffee mugs, tote bags, and other great stuff. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, check out patreon.com slash arthousegarage and become a patron today. You can also find that link in the show notes. Welcome to Arthouse Garage. This episode is going to be a little bit different. I've talked about film festivals on the show before, but my experience at Bentonville went far beyond watching movies and I ended up having more than enough material to make an entire podcast episode out of it. I'll say up front, I couldn't watch everything the festival had to offer. That's partially because I was only there for three of the five days of the in-person fest. And when I was there, there were so many events happening at any given time that it felt a little bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. That's a good problem to have. What I am going to do is walk through the experience I had with the Fest and talk about the films that I watched. So I'm going to talk about a lot of films and filmmakers. Almost all of the films I'm going to mention have profiles on Instagram and other social media, and I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes of this episode. My hope is that as you listen, a few of these films spark your interest and you'll follow along with them online. So first, I'm going to quickly walk through the festival and all the events that I attended, and then I'll focus in on the films themselves. The in-person fest ran from Wednesday, June 22nd through Sunday, the 26th. I showed up Friday morning, so right in the middle. I got up early that morning and made the three-hour drive from my home in North Little Rock up to the Meteor Guitar Center in downtown Bentonville, which served as the festival headquarters. As a member of the press, I had been invited uh, to a filmmaker meet-and-greet breakfast. I decided to bring my portable podcasting equipment just in case uh, if any of the filmmakers were up for a brief chat about their project, but I really wasn't sure if anyone would want to. Almost as soon as I got the microphone out, I was swamped. People basically lined up, and I was interviewing nonstop for almost two hours. So I have a lot of really great recorded material to share later in this episode. I left there to get to the Thaden School for a panel on women in cinema called If She Can See It, She Can Be It. Gina Davis, along with a panel of women filmmakers, spoke about their work in bettering the representation of women on screen and behind the camera. It was really amazing to hear each of the panelists talk about their projects, and Gina Davis shared numbers of how representation has improved in the last several years, something her foundation has worked hard to achieve. After that, I grabbed a quick lunch from the Delta Biscuit Company food truck, which is one of my favorite food trucks. It was parked right outside, and then I checked into my Airbnb before heading back to another panel. This one was about NFTs and how filmmakers can utilize them to help fund their projects. The world of NFTs is fairly new to me. I'm just sort of dipping my toes into understanding how that all works, but I'm pretty fascinated by it. The panel was called Team Fempower, Empowering Women in Web3. And the panelists were all women. I was really glad of that, actually, because most of the things I've heard about NFTs have come from bro white guys on the internet, and hearing another perspective was really refreshing. I sadly didn't have time to stay for the whole panel, but I caught a lot of it, and I'm definitely going to be following these panelists online and trying to learn more about this world. I was also able to interview a few of the panelists about that subject and here's what they had to say.
2: My name is Diana Zalokoffer. We're hosting the first ever NFT panel here and we're really happy that Bentonville is like taking this
3: initiative seriously. Um, My name is Jordan Bain. Um, I'm the founder of the NFT Film Squad. Uh, We are the original Web3 Media Collective producing content on NFTs, Web3, and film. And as far as NFTs, I got in
2: that as a consumer, a buyer. You know, just looking at it at that sense. And then um, a, a couple of people were talking and the buzz were going around about how filmmakers are using NFTs, you know, um, to fund their project or distribute their projects or retain control. And someone was kind enough to get me in contact with Jordan and she just gave me a slew of information. I was like, OK, we need to get this out there for more people can understand what's going on.
1: That's amazing. So, what about you? As far as you know, NFTs and filmmaking, and kind of the relationship there, uh, what makes you feel excited about that?
3: Um, well, I've spoken over a hundred thousand hours on this uh, subject. <laughs> um, so, as a, as a filmmaker, I made a film called *The Sea Is All I Know*. It was an Oscar contender. It starred Melissa Leo. And um, you know, at the time, everyone said that's that's your calling card. But I found out that's not your calling card when you're a woman. Um, And so when crypto came around, um, I got in a little bit early, and then just cut to when NFTs came around, I realized, you know, that this was an incredible opportunity for filmmakers to remove the gatekeepers, to have self-sovereignty, to own your own copyright. Basically, I mean, and this is, there's a lot of information here, but you know, that, that you can dive into. There's a fundraising aspect. There's a production aspect. There's a distribution aspect, and there's a lot of there are a lot of incredible pioneers out there that are um, building this new vertical. So if you're on Twitter, follow the NFT Film Squad. Follow me. My name's Jordan Bain. Uh, we have a Discord. There are amazing filmmakers out there really uh, building this new vertical together, and um, and I'm super passionate about it because it's really going to change uh, access and ownership. For filmmakers.
1: That's great. Thank you guys both so much for your time and really excited for that panel later. So I'll be seeing you all on stage Thank in you. a little while here. Thanks so much. Thank you. After that, I headed to a film screening for a documentary called Deconstructing Karen. It follows anti racism advocates Syra Rao and Regina Jackson, who have started an organization called Race to Dinner. They have identified one way they can make a difference is by having frank discussions about race with a group of people who often don't see the problems around racial inequality, and that group is white women. Their organization holds dinner parties with white women, at which Syrah and Regina lead a discussion about racism, and one of those dinner parties is what we see in the film. Things get pretty dramatic. The film also details a lot of the history around racism and racial inequality in America, and it showcases other activism work being done. I quite enjoyed the film, especially... As a way of looking at the process of unlearning, what does it take to make someone realize that they hold a harmful viewpoint? In this case, it might take a woman of color telling you to your face that you are racist and that you benefit from white supremacy. Really interesting film, and I'm glad to know about Race to Dinner and the work they're doing. I left that screening and went to check out the festival's outdoor screening setup outside the Momentary which is an art gallery and a venue nearby. They called it Festival Village, and the atmosphere here was really fun. There was a big movie screen, playing family-friendly films. Beetlejuice was playing when I got there, but they also had a Disney day. They had a Lionsgate day, showing all kinds of different family-friendly things. And there were food trucks and vendor booths, handing out all kinds of free food and drinks. It was a lot of fun, and while I was there, I connected with filmmaker Obed Lamy. Obed has been on the podcast a few times before, but we had never met in person. It was great to meet him, and we grabbed dinner together. I ended out the day Friday with one more film screening, a fascinating documentary about incarcerated artists called Art and Crimes by Crimes. That's Crimes with a K. The main artist in the film is named Jesse Crimes. More about that film in a few minutes. The next day, Saturday, my first screening was at Bentonville's Skylight Cinema, which is a great little theater. Uh, it was for a film called God's Country from director Julian Higgins and starring Tantiwe Newton. It's a neo-western about a college professor tormented by some local men. I really love this film and I'm definitely going to talk more about it later in this episode and hopefully also more later this year. After the film and q and I left there, grabbed some tacos from a taco truck for lunch, and then headed back to the Skylight Cinema for a screening of straighten up and fly right. This film is about a character named Kristen, a young woman with a disability called ankylosing spondylitis. I was a big fan of this movie as well, and I'll give some more details on that later in the show. That evening, I was invited to a red carpet, so I grabbed my camera, took about a thousand photos of many of the filmmakers in attendance, all dressed to the nines. That was a lot of fun, and it was immediately followed by a film award ceremony, and then an after-party, which included a very energetic performance by two Arkansas rappers, Bang and Jasper Logan. For that award ceremony, Gina Davis and many of the other Bentonville Film Festival board members presented awards to the winning films. There are some photos of this and the red carpet at arthousegarage.com slash bff22-winners, and there's a link in the show notes. And here are the films that won. In the Episodic category, this is things like TV pilots and web series, Honorary Mention went to a pilot called Cora and Sam Hate the Dentist from filmmakers Jade Kaiser and Elise Gilfoyle. I did see that one. It is hilarious and I loved it. And the Episodic Award went to Carlos Cardona for his project, Chiqui. In the Short Film category, filmmaker Jamil Eady won Honorary Mention for her short, the Bond. More on this one later as well. And the Short Film Award went to Jael Pak for their film Georgia. Next up, Feature Documentaries. Honorary Mention went to Nancy Svinson for her film Passing in the Shadow of Everest. And the Documentary Film Award went to Gretchen Stolce for the film Shouting Down Midnight. And finally, Feature Films Honorary Mention went to Nardeep Kermi for the film Land of Gold, and the Narrative Film Award went to Alika Tenjin for the film Every Day in Kaimuki. In addition to those winning films, the Rising Star Award was presented to actor Finn Argus, and the Rising to the Challenge Award went to producer Effie Brown. Congratulations to all the filmmakers who took home an award this year. I wasn't able to see all of the winning films, but the ones I did were certainly deserving. Okay, so that's my festival experience. But now let's talk more about the films. I also watched a lot of films virtually. The virtual festival continued a whole additional week, and they had almost everything up on the virtual platform to stream on demand. What I'm going to do now is talk through the films I watched in more detail and include some of those filmmaker interviews I recorded on site. Altogether, I watched 21 films during the Bentonville Film Festival. As I watched through these, there were themes that seemed to come up again and again, and so I think the best way to talk through all of these is to group them into some rough thematic categories. Those three categories are reproductive rights, art and creativity, and marginalized experiences. So first up, let's talk about reproductive rights. Basically, as I was walking in the door to the festival Friday morning, the news was breaking about the overturning of Roe vs. Wade that horrific news really hung like a cloud over the entire next two days coming up in almost every panel and many of the conversations i was having with filmmakers today we just found out that roe v wade was overturned and i think it's important to say here in bentonville that it's really the the walton family and the walmart company that funded the right-wing resurgence in this country and it's safe to say that if there were no walmart we'd still have Roe v. Wade. So I think it's, you know, just important while we're here to, to acknowledge that uh, the money behind this is also the money that's behind this right-wing resurgence in this country. So it felt incredibly timely that many of the films showing dealt directly with the topic of abortion and reproductive freedom. In fact, the documentary that won Honorary Mention, Shouting Down Midnight, is all about the filibuster of an anti-abortion case in the Texas State Senate in 2013. I sadly did not get to watch that film, but the very first film I did watch was a beautiful short called Miso, from director Kelly Walker, writer Mariah Bess, and starring Alex Scambati and Mariah Bess. The film opens with a woman named Kat welcoming Sophie into her apartment. Their relationship isn't clear at first because it seems like they've just met, but it gradually becomes clear that Sophie is a doula, and she's there to help Kat through an in-home termination of her pregnancy, also called a, quote, Plan C abortion. The film is warm and sweet, and the two women form a brief but intimate connection over the course of the story, with both actors bringing incredible humanity and warmth to their roles. I really enjoyed this film. Another film focused on reproductive freedom is actually a web series called How to Hack Birth Control from director Sassy Moen. It falls into the category of, quote, edutainment, and it's a series that basically wraps genuinely useful sex education in a clever and consistently funny package. The writing is impressive, moving from a parody of game shows to Fox News to infomercials, all tied together by giving women the information they need to navigate the world of birth control and safe sex. Here's what Moen had to say when I spoke with her at the festival.
4: Uh, I'm Sassy Moen and my TV pilot is called How to Hack Birth Control. I'm the writer, director, producer, and editor. And And my name is Lauren Elizabeth Harris and I play Wendy in How to Hack Birth Control. Yeah, so How to Hack Birth Control is kind of like infotainment. So if Samantha Bee and SNL had a modern baby uh, and the baby used a lot of TikTok, that would be How to Hack Birth Control. Uh, It's educational, it's basically a a comedy telling women how to get birth control. within their budget how to get it easily cheaply and all the different types that are out there because at least still today it's more accessible than people think and hopefully we'll continue to stay that way so yeah
1: that's sadly timely with (laughs) everything going on even today with roe versus wade but uh, how did you get involved in the film
4: So Sassy mentioned yesterday during the Q&A after her film that she received 5,000 submissions um, to be in the film, and I was one of the lucky chosen ones. (laughs) And then Sassy and I really hit it off because I do a lot of activism work within the film projects that I create. Um, And then because we really connected and we connected on the mission and we were doing so much press together, she ended up um, making me an associate producer on the project, which has been really incredible because it's one of the issues that's most important to me, especially now. So I'm really glad that we can have a part in hoping to make change in this crazy world that we're living in. I guess the only thing that I'd like to add is you know, when Sassy asked me to come to a film festival in Arkansas, I was like, really? You want to go to a film festival in Arkansas? And since being here, it's by far the best festival I've ever been to. Um, I think the caliber of films was incredible. And then also just how well curated all of them are and the different missions and different statements each film is trying to make, I think has been incredible. So we're just really excited to be here.
1: And finally, I also watched a short film called Choices. I love the creative setup of this one. In Choices, the lead character, Zazie, learns that she is pregnant, and at the doctor, we suddenly enter a split-screen shot, dividing the film into two separate storylines. In one, Zazie chooses to have her child, and in the other, she chooses abortion. What's interesting is that neither choice is an easy one, and both lead to friction professionally and in personal relationships. It's also fascinating to see how the clinic responds differently to each choice. Producer and star, Jess Jacobs, gives two different but both very grounded and nuanced performances, illustrating the difficulty of making such a complex decision. And visually, the film does a great job. There are subtle differences in coloring and cinematography between the two stories, so it's clear, as we jump back and forth, which version of Zazie we're watching. Here's director and star Jess Jacobs.
5: So I'm Jess Jacobs. I am the writer and star of Choices, which is a short film uh, dealing with unintended pregnancy, which feels quite relevant today. Um, it's a story of a, of a young woman named Zazie who finds herself pregnant and she makes both choices. So we kind of have a little like split universe magical realism moment in which she decides to bring her pregnancy to term and to have an abortion. So we follow her in the 24 hours between that first appointment and then either her first prenatal or her abortion appointment, kind of watching her in- and with with the people in her life the women in her life primarily um, and seeing how she how she navigates these two decisions that she's made
1: How does it feel to have a, a film that's is so unintentionally timely
5: Yeah it's so I started writing it in 2018 before this I mean Look, abortion has been on the chopping block. It's been on the minds of the conservative folks since 73, right, since since Roe. And I do a lot of activism in that space. Um, and then, of course, I'm also a, a, a filmmaker and, and, a, and a performer. And so to be able to bring these two things together was such a pleasure, knowing that it would have some relevance, but not, not really thinking that I would be in Arkansas on the day when Roe falls, where there's a trigger ban, and abortion is illegal in Arkansas today. And that is just a really bizarre... it's like actually very hard to to process. And and to have a film which was not intended to be political at all. It was really intended to explore the humanity behind the decision. And it's the decision to have an abortion or to bring your pregnancy to term because those are both choices. It's not like abortion is a deviation from the norm, though now that's going to be the rhetoric and and the sort of stigma that is continuing to surround it, which is so devastating. Um, But it also was really intended to say like, this is a metaphor for choices that we make big and small on a daily basis. And so uh, what was really kind of a, a, both a literal and a metaphorical kind of exploration of choice is now becoming something that feels quite political. Um, I'm, I'm here for it, I'm, I'm open to it, but it definitely wasn't the intention with the film.
1: Wow. Well, thanks so much for, for being here in Arkansas. And what's your impression of, of the festival?
5: Oh, my god. So Bentonville was definitely like center of the target for me. Because the festival is a festival that that celebrates voices that are typically not centered in the conversation, um, I think reproductive health is something that we are all navigating on a daily basis. So we don't see it in the film sphere as, as much as we, as we might. Um, and I think sort of the see it, be it of it all is like if you see these experiences, then you get to experience them as normal i had an abortion when i was 19 years old i don't see them on screen in a way that feels related to the experience that i had and when i do i have another friend um with a short film here called miso and so yeah so alex is a, is a dear friend of mine and, and mariah as well and uh it was so similar to the experience that i had i had a medi- medication abortion i didn't self-manage but um you're just like oh these and you know making the choice and all that stuff like it just it really matters and, and bentonville stands for that in such a beautiful way and so um it's just a joy it's just a joy to be here at the at the fest
1: that's so great i haven't talked to the filmmakers behind Miso, but i watched that one and found it so moving and um, yeah i think it's just forever and especially in media it's like oh the abortion is like the dark mark on our family or whatever and to have more positive human depictions of that I think is so important so thank you for that and how can we follow along online with the film and everything
5: Absolutely. So we have an Instagram, which is at choices underscore short film. We also have a website, which is www.choicesshortfilm.com. You'll be able to find a bunch of information there. And we actually also have an engagement guide. Um, So we worked with um, Picture Motion, which is a great impact production organization. Um, And so they have helped us put together a guide with a bunch of different questions about the film that help you sort of explore a little bit more in terms of the themes and the characters, um, as well as a bunch of different places to find further information on what's happening in the and the abortion and and birth equity landscape.
1: The next selection of films I want to look at all dealt with art and creativity. First, a feature documentary called Mixtape Trilogy from director Kathleen Hermitage. It's a documentary about musicians and fans, and it follows three music fans who have been deeply affected by particular artists. The musicians featured are folk rock group, The Indigo Girls, composer and pianist Vijay Iyer, and rapper Talib Kweli. It's a great formula. First, we meet an interesting fan and learn why they love the music. Then we learn all about the artist and what inspires them before digging into the creation of a specific song. Then the fan and the artist appear on camera together, talking about the art. The Indigo Girls section introduces us to a super fan named Dylan. She's seen the Indigo Girls hundreds of times, and she talks about how their music helped her accept her own sexuality. She recalls a time when telling someone you're a fan of the Indigo Girls was basically code for I'm a lesbian, and it helped her to find safe people in her life. The Indigo Girls are interviewed, and they talk about their songwriting process for the song Go!, which is all about activism. The next section, which was my favorite, introduces us to Garnett, a man from Kingston, Jamaica, who loves taking walks. He has lived in many cities and always feels most connected to his community when walking. This pastime proved more dangerous than expected when he became the victim of racial profiling while walking in New York City. Garnett is also a big fan of composer Vijay Eyre who includes messages about race and immigration in his music. VJ is interviewed and the two speak about the importance of music and art in activism. And finally, the music of rapper Talib Kweli inspires Mike, the quote hip hop architect who leads a program teaching kids about art and architecture and how to build more sustainable communities. Mike shares his personal story of loss and how he found meaning and healing in his work. Mike saw the way that Talib uses music to improve those around him and used a similar model to develop his architecture course. The film really digs into the music more than I expected. As someone who cares a lot about art and how it affects people, this film really moved me. The trick, I think, is that the filmmakers found fans who are fascinating on their own, and then the film is only enhanced that much more when the music and the musicians come into the story. This model could really make for a fantastic series, similar to Behind the Music or something, but with this fandom angle that I found really resonant. More than
6: anything I've ever seen on the planet, music brings together more diverse types of people all over the world.
1: Power it has to give us this unified experience. We are now joined in feeling.
6: This art means so much to me. I've never seen something more unifying than hip hop music.
2: I never feel like we're doing a show. Like we're just singing these songs, and the people who come to see us and who love our music, it's part of the journey of their lives, and it's the journey of our lives. There's just a real sense of community. Music can bring you to the brink of your own sense of what's possible, your own understanding
1: of yourself and the world.
7: I've been through the worst moment that I possibly could experience in life. What I've turned to uh, was was music. For me, it was all about you know trying to escape.
6: Hip-hop is speaking directly to the people. Because of that, the people who are oppressed, the people who are fighting back, hip-hop is going to galvanize those people, and hip-hop's gonna build bridges and build connections.
2: Music reminds you of the experiences of other people.
1: That's what drives me, the understanding that this is what music can do, that it can live in people.
2: The first time I heard The Go Girls, I remember hearing it and thinking, I love that, I don't know what that is yet but I love that. You always know you're different, but you don't know how.
0: I'm so grateful that we get to hook into something
2: as powerful as this. I just felt like they were singing about experiences that I had had. Not because we create it, but because we're part of it. Being able to find your community, whatever that is, music is really a way to find your people.
1: Next up, a feature called The Seven Faces of Jane. This one is fascinating, and it relates to this subject of art and creativity because it has a very unusual structure, and a structure that is designed to create unusual creative results. Basically, the film is split into seven parts, and each part has its own writer-director. It's called the, quote, exquisite corpse model. It can be used in any art form, splitting a whole project between a number of artists. In this case, the film stars Gillian Jacobs as Jane, a young woman who drops her daughter off at summer camp and then goes on a road trip and has a variety of unusual experiences. The directors for the film are Gillian Jacobs herself, Julian Acosta, Zan Cassavetes, Gia Coppola, Ryan Heffington, Boma Iluma, Kin Jiang, and Alex de Cox. Each director was given a setting and a basic plot device, like... Jane reconnects with an ex-lover or Jane loses a friend. In one section of the film, Jane meets an ex on the beach, in another she gets in a fight in a diner, she picks up a beautiful hitchhiker, and so forth. I know Gillian Jacobs best from the show Community, and there's even a mini community reunion in one section with Ken Jeong behind the camera and Joel McHale making an appearance in the film. Formally very interesting and a wonderfully varied experience to watch with different visual styles and tones in each section. I had the pleasure of interviewing two of the film's directors, Boma Iluma and Julian Acosta, about their experience making the film. Here is a portion of that interview and you can watch the whole thing on YouTube at the link in the show notes. I'm here with Boma Iluma and Julian Acosta, two of the directors of The Seven Faces of Jane. Thank you both so much for being here um uh, it's a really fascinating film it has such an unusual structure so it's, you know, it's feature length but divided into what seven or eight parts with a different director creating each portion of the film so as I understand it you were given a little bit of direction for a starting point but I'm, I'm curious about what exactly that was uh so Bowman, let's start with you your segment of the film is called Tayo and it takes place on the sorry apologize. Yeah. it takes place on this beautiful beach um, and has you know features this musician who has history with jane what direction were you given uh to start with and how did you decide where to take the story yeah thank you for having us
7: um the we had to play uh, we were playing we played a game exquisites corpse and in the game you uh pull a, you pull cards and it kind of gives you a sense of um give a sense of the story order so i think i pulled the card for the second part of the the second short that's going to uh, be part second part of the journey and then that was followed by um i put another card that said jane's encounter with a stranger mm, okay. um and then interpret that to be tayo okay or right. oliver who is now yeah. tayo
1: did it um it specify the setting or uh any of the other aspects of it
7: Yes, yes, yes. And, and I also pulled a card for the beach. <laughs> the beach. Okay, okay. Yeah,
1: I I, wondered, I thought that I remembered hearing that the setting was part of that. Um, well, you're, all, all the segments have their own kind of visual style. And in Tayo, in particular, it really stands out because it has, you know, different quality of film and different aspect ratio. How did you decide how this would look visually? Um, and do you think you approached it any differently because it's part of this kind of larger film project than you would another, another film?
7: Um, yeah, at the time, um, the big influences for the piece were um, the Anto- Antonioni films, uh, uh, La Ventura, and um, some, a lot of French cinema as well, too. And we we wanted to create something that felt very intimate and nostalgic, because that's when Jane is going through. She has this nostalgia of who Tayo was in the past, um, and but we wanted to juxtapose it with um what was going on currently in her life um yeah i wanted it to stand out i don't I, we didn't know what the other directors were doing right um mm-hmm. but i felt it was i felt it was unique to shoot within those two um with it with those two mediums and then also doing it in four by three like mm-hmm. with the intention for it to stand out so yeah amongst yeah. other films
1: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, you know, when I think back to the film, just some of the images of the beach is what pops into my head. It's uh, really visually striking in that segment. Uh, well, Julian, same question for you. What were you given? What cards did you draw? And, um, and how did you choose where to go from there? Your segment is called yeah. Rose. And it's uh, this beautiful story about a, a girl who's run away from her keen
0: Sierra. Um, how, how did you uh, decide on that? Um, yeah, so my my cards. I I got lucky for my story beat. Um, I got a wild card. Oh, nice. Um, so there were just a couple of wild cards that were in in mixed in the game. So um, a little freedom there uh, for the story beat. And then my location was a neighborhood, and the the um, the place. I think I was fifth in the mix, if that's right. Um, and you know just thinking about um, the other part of your question was about the the format or the look or the visual language Um, for me in my film um, you know Rose is sort of put into this situation where she has to live with her grandmother in like a predominantly Latino neighborhood Mm -hmm. and it feels old to her it feels traditional it feels um like it's something that uh, she's moved beyond, or or is not a part of, right? Um, so I, I chose to shoot sixteen millimeter film. Um, it, it was uh, quite scary, you know. It's been a while since I shot that format, and um, you know, a, a lot of my recent work I think is shot digitally and, and felt um, slick in some ways. So um, it was it was a scary uh, decision, but I think it felt uh, very appropriate uh, for the piece. Um, you know, she works through this stuff. She works through and realizes, oh, it's not old or, or um, I'm not or old fashioned. Um, it's just part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we we chose to shoot that format uh, to communicate that idea, and and even using very simple camera um, moves and, uh, maybe mostly, you know, the camera being static and, and, um, we wanted that the story to sort of shine Mm -hmm. and, and show like, Hey, you know, this is the thing that she's, she's really struggling with.
1: The final film I wanted to highlight on the theme of art and creativity is a documentary called art and crimes. By crimes. And again, that's crimes with a K. The film follows Jesse Crimes. He's an artist who was formerly incarcerated and now uses his artistic platform in the fight for prison reform. Jesse tells his story to the camera, including his childhood and later his time in prison, and a lot of that is brought to life with some really beautiful, unique animation. One of the most thrilling parts of the film is seeing the art he created while incarcerated. As an act of defiance, he chose to use secretly, prison bedsheets as his canvas instead of the materials he was provided. He created an enormous piece called Apocalyptine 16389067. He made it out of 39 bedsheets, and he smuggled them all out one by one in the mail. He didn't get to see them all assembled until after his release, a moment that we witness in the film. After release from prison, Jesse initially struggles to find meaningful work as an artist, but later does and also starts a nonprofit to support formerly incarcerated artists like himself. The film is also about friendship. The immediate connection that he has to his fellow artist inmates is really beautiful. In prison, not a lot of people are artistically minded, and when he met the other men working in the prison's art space, they became friends for life, supporting each other at art shows after being released. More than anything, the film is about the unquenchable drive to create, even amidst challenging circumstances, and the way art is vital for human beings. After the film screened at the momentary, artist Jesse Crimes and filmmaker Elisa Namias were there for a Q&A. They discussed how the film was made, and Jesse spoke about his artistic process. Very fascinating stuff, and I hope this film streams before long, because I can't wait for more people to see it. For the third and final section of films for this podcast, I decided to look at minority experiences. The Bentonville Film Festival has a huge focus on diversity and inclusion, so there are a lot of films that fit into this theme. Like this one, a short called The Syed Family Christmas Eve Game Night, from director Fazia Mirza, and starring Kausar Mohammed, Vico Ortiz, and Mira Rohit Kumbani. The film features a Pakistani woman bringing her Puerto Rican girlfriend home for the first time. The film depicts the awkwardness of the situation because of the cultural barriers present and the challenges of introducing a queer relationship to a family that clearly isn't used to that, but ultimately the film is a very heartwarming comedy finding cringy humor amidst this unique situation. Another short film that dealt with this theme is called The Weight of It. It's from filmmakers Olivia Marie Valdez, Sandra Afonso Rodriguez, and Einar Soler Fernandez. This is a really unique stop motion depiction of an elderly couple examining how their bodies have changed over the years. The film has no dialogue, it's very funny, and it ends up as a heartwarming, human, and body positive little piece of clay animation. Another funny but thought-provoking project came from director Aiza Fatima. I'll let her introduce it herself.
8: So my name is Aiza Fatima and I'm here with a comedy sketch-based pilot called Muslim Girls DTF. Discuss their faith, wink, wink.
1: <laughs> uh, tell us about the the premise and how you came to be involved with it.
8: Yeah, so um, I am the creator and the director of it, and uh, the premise is I just like was auditioning for a girl named Fatima for a third time in a row, written by not a Muslim woman, as I'm an actor, right? And so. So it was like the same character, and like she takes off her hijab in the name of Western feminism. And I'm like, what is this? Like the women I know who are Muslim put on the hijab in the name of their feminism, right? So I just got really frustrated, and I did what like every comedy writer does. I turned to Twitter to find my tribe, and I sent out this tweet saying like, you know, people who are not from this community should stop writing characters that are American Muslim women, unless you're one of them, unless you are an American Muslim woman. And um, all these uh, female comics retweeted and like sent me messages and then I connected with a bunch of them. And we kind of created a little group in New York City where I am. And uh, it turns out my co-creator, Ethere um lives li- like like 10 blocks away from me. So And we had never met. And I kind of knew about her and she kind of knew about me because we're both in the same world. Um, yeah, so we got together and just started... Um, we got a bunch of uh, grant funds and awards for to create an uh, all-American Muslim female writer's room. Um, yeah, so we in the middle of the pandemic. So uh, that's when uh, Zainab Johnson came on board, who is like a huge name in comedy. She's amazing, she's on upload right now. Uh, and then Nagin Farsad who is in her own right, she's like the OG muslim woman comedian who's been around for like twenty years um, and then a bunch of just like younger up-and-coming people um, and yeah and we just took it from there and now here we are with the pilot in Bentonville
1: that's so great well i was gonna ask you about Bentonville and is this your first time being in arkansas and what's your impression of the festival so far
8: I love the Bentonville Film Festival it is my happy place literally not even kidding right now I this is my third time in Bentonville so I have a one-woman show called also with a slutty title it's called because that's all I do it's called dirty packy lingerie it's about the American Muslim Pakistani female identity Um, I brought that to the University in Fayetteville um, a few years ago like five or six years ago and because uh, i do a lot of like college performances and i do workshops around it and just kind of engage communities to you know talk about their own personal stories that way um and then last year i was at bentonville with my first feature film which is called americanish and this year i'm back with my pilot so i i love i'm like can i like any excuse how do i get here next year that's my goal
1: the pilot is really wonderful it's sketch comedy but each sketch is preceded by some talking head interviews with the performers, where they're talking about their experiences with Islamophobia, sexism, racism, but they're doing it all with humor. This show is a reminder of just how powerful laughter can be at helping people to confront uncomfortable things, and it's a beautiful example of a group of women taking control of their own stories. Actually, many of the filmmakers there were telling their own stories, including another series called Brownsville Bread. Here's director Elaine Del Valle.
9: My name is Elaine Del Valle, and I'm the writer and director of Brownsville Bread. My film is is based on my true coming-of-age story and it's it's actually in the episodic category so it's it's the first act of what we hope to be a, a full blown episodic series or in, in this case it's, it's actually an anthology series so um, we intend to finish the first block as what might look like also a feature film and what can double as a feature film but then also we can move into the space of anthology series with it as we explore other people in the neighborhood of Brownsville, Brooklyn which is where I'm from and um the, the film really, um, really begs the question of, of what makes us who we are, nature versus nurture. And that's what we really explore in it. And, and it deals with um, all of the um, stigma that, uh, that surrounds neighborhoods like Brownsville, generational poverty, and, and other things that, that might be seen as if it can stand in our way. But um, in the case of Brownsville Bread, and and we think in everyone, there's so much promise that exists that we want to show how how people can overcome that. Um, We just won South by Southwest Audience Award, uh, followed by the Series Fest Cast Matthews Award. We're here at Bensonville, so proud to be here. And uh, first time in Arkansas, really enjoying the people. And on our way to Palm Springs after this. I'm always wanting to tell more stories, not just not just my own and in this case uh, brownsville bread is definitely my most intimate story in that it is my own coming of age story um and deals with a lot of the the reflection of of what empowered me it used to be things that i thought of as obstacles uh, my 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 dad while he was an amazing musician and artist he was also a, a struggling addict and that was something that I had to overcome in, in my adulthood even because of the shame. So um, so I really just, I wanna tell stories that really dignify marginalized voices and not just um, use them as, 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 as a trope or um, in an inauthentic way coming from a voice that doesn't love or understand those people. And so all of my work, I think, just has a tremendous amount of heart that wants to represent people in my life that I feel are not represented as often as, the, as, they, as they should be, could be. And, and as a result of that, actually going even deeper into the conversation, um, I feel like there's a term called symbolic annihilation and the term was, um, was coined um, back in, I believe, the 1970s out of the University of Michigan. I could be wrong on the date and even the place. <laughs> but um, but what it, what it says is that if you do not see yourself in the media that you consume, that you must not matter. And so in all of my work, I, I believe that... Uh, with through through art through filmmaking, I can I can make an impact in that. So that's really what I want to continue to do and to tell stories that that make that change happen.
1: In another example of filmmakers putting their own story on screen, here's Robin Wong, the director of a short called Wei Lai.
6: Oh hi, my name is Robin Wong, and I'm the director for the short film Wei Lai. Uh, Wei Lai is a coming-of-age um, Asian-American comedy about this 11-year-old Chinese-American boy who got too tired of being punished by his own parents, and then he ran off to his best friend's family and then offered himself up for their adoption. And in this uh, bittersweet coming-of-age comedy, the, uh, our main character comes to terms with his identity and who he is, and finding a way to, uh, to express and then uh, find a shape of love uh, in his own terms. I, I was from USC School of Cinematic Arts, and then I paired up with this writer who wrote a story, uh, this uh, painfully funny and funny also painful drama, <laughs> dramedy. And then, uh, and then we team up really quickly because the story about uh, the next generations of Asian Americans growing estranged from their parents uh, and finding finding it hard to um, to to articulate uh, the grammars of love with our parents, and we ended up hurting each other. These are the stories and the themes that really resonate with us because, as as members of Asian diaspora, we are constantly looking for a place called home. And then this is a uh, this is a film, this is a journey where the main character is finding home for himself. So it is really great to have a film festival like this, not just like all the way all on the coast, but in the heartland of. A, the United States and uh, Bentonville, Arkansas is a very welcoming town. And all the way you know, uh, back to when we, we landed in the airport, it's a it's a it's a very warm and nice environment.
1: Waylay is hilarious and moving, exploring identity and the immigrant experience. It definitely feels like a story that someone could only tell if they've lived it. One more film tied to this theme is a film called The Bond from director Jemuel Eady. This was one of the very best shorts I saw during the festival, and it won the honorary mention for short films. Here's director Jameel Eady.
2: My name is Jameel Eady. Um, My film is called The Bond. It follows an incarcerated pregnant woman as she fights to maintain connection um, in a very isolating uh, environment. Um, It is the story of my birth. Well, it's inspired by my mother my mother's experience giving birth to me but um, it is also a more nuanced and universal story I think about just um, a person's search for connection and the power of the transformative power of of human connection I think even in the most desolate places we can we can turn to that and it will help us persevere so Uh,
1: that sounds so fascinating and um, I'm curious what bringing in a way your own story to the screen was that were there challenges whether emotionally or or whatever uh doing that
2: yeah i mean um yeah i there were definitely tough times when it came to the the actual production part of it um the writing part of it it was it, it felt like healing so it was something that needed to be done so that in a way it kind of like poured out of me but I remember there being a moment during production where i I was sitting at the monitor and you know watching this this particular scene um, where um, I, I don't want to like ruin the, the, the story but but I, I, my 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 actress um, my main actress uh, Ashley Wilkerson did a phenomenal job and it just really hit me and I had to excuse myself (laughs) from the set and it was it was actually mortifying because it's like okay I have to excuse myself from the set right and like had my AD step in to um, take control for a minute but yeah it's sort of one of those things where it's like it's too real or it's too close to home but it's also sort of an an important thing right it's important that um, we tell these types of stories that um, can be healing, I think, for every for everybody involved, um, or for people who need to see their experiences represented and know that they're not alone.
1: With an incredibly tough story, the film doesn't shy away from the emotionally and physically traumatic aspects of giving birth while incarcerated, or the tragedy that many women face in these situations. Each of these films makes a strong case for diversity behind the camera. These unique stories are so powerful because they are so personal. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to highlight two more films, and these two were my very favorite of the festival. The first is called Straighten Up and Fly Right, directed by Kristen Abate and Steven Tenenbaum. Kristen and Stephen are also the stars of the film, and their characters' names are Kristen and Stephen. In real life, and in the film, Stephen has a condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which affects the spine and can cause a hunching posture of the back. Kristen does not have this condition in reality, but her character in the film does. And the film follows her many challenges living with a disability in New York City. Over the course of the film, she finds something of a chosen family, including Stephen, and they connect over having the same condition. It's a beautiful film, told with care. Many of the insights of the film come as Kristen and Stephen talk to each other about how they wish the world would treat them. The film also pleasantly surprised me with some of its narrative choices. At the post-film Q&A, Stephen and Kristen spoke about their long friendship and creative partnership and how they came to write and direct the film together. The film is full of empathy and nuance, and I found it to be an incredibly moving look, not only at disability and acceptance, but also at friendship, creativity, and self-acceptance.
0: This is so f***ed up. You the dog walker?
8: Stop looking at me like that. Yeah.
7: You wanna come in? No. You sure?
3: I'm, I'm good out here. This isn't funny.
7: Um, The leashes are inside. Are you
8: making fun of me?
7: Uh, get them. Sure you don't wanna come in?
8: Stand up straight, asshole. This isn't funny.
7: Okay.
3: okay, I got him.
8: I should leave right now. I don't need the money. Just go, Kristen. Just get out of here.
3: Is Bitsy out here? My other dog.
2: She's right there. Um can Okay. Yeah, I have other dogs. Come on.
7: Do you want me to go with you?
1: No. Come on, let's go. You sure? Come on. And finally, I mentioned it before, the film God's Country. This is a Neo Western directed by Julian Higgins, written by Julian Higgins and Shay Obana, and starring Tondewe Newton. Tandiwe plays Sandra, a college professor who lives alone in the beautiful snowy mountains of Montana. One day, two hunters trespass on her property, and she decides not to ignore it. Things escalate. That's all I'll say about the story, but I was so impressed by this film on a few levels. First, the story is much more complex than I initially expected, fleshing out backstories and weaving in a number of important and timely political issues, but doing so organically and without ever feeling preachy. I also fell hard for the cinematography of this film. Not only are the landscapes beautifully captured, the camera is placed with such care and intention in every shot of the film, sometimes revealing key information at just the right moment. It was really thrilling. The performances are all on point. The story is thematically rich and it kept me on the edge of my seat. I hope to discuss this film in more depth later this year. It played Sundance earlier in 2022, and it is set for a wide release sometime this fall. It's definitely one I hope to watch again, and I highly recommend checking it out. That's God's Country. It's going to be in the running for my best films of the year.
5: Morning, man. Good morning to you. It's a prime spot you got here. Hey, we just figured we Walk up into the woods. We won't be any trouble for you. We'll stay out of your hair.
9: You must have got my note, though. I put it on your truck yesterday.
5: It's first I heard of any note. What, what did it say?
9: It said I'd prefer you not park here.
7: Uh-huh. It's just there's not a lot of good jumping off points around here.
2: You could always come in from the other side.
7: The other side? How far
1: is that?
9: About 15 miles.
4: 15 miles.
5: And we're not going to put a bolt in anyone's house or shoot anybody's cow. I didn't think you were. Yeah, but you tell me you want us to walk up uh, fifteen miles in the snow.
9: That's not what I said, and I'm not telling you to do anything. All I'm saying is, before you park on someone's property, you have to ask.
5: I heard about you. Just didn't know it was this canyon.
1: And that will wrap up this episode about the 2022 Bentonville Film Festival. As you can tell, I had a great time. If you were in the market for a weekend getaway next year, you could do no better than a trip to Bentonville to take in some great cinema. As I mentioned at the top of the show, everything discussed on this episode has a presence on social media, so please check the show notes for links to those. If any of these films sound interesting to you, I hope you'll follow along online to learn more. I actually recorded a handful more interviews, and I couldn't quite fit them into this episode, but they are definitely worth listening to. I'm going to put those together into a shorter bonus episode and release that into the podcast feed very soon, so stay tuned for that. Coming up on the show, I'm very excited for the next episode, which is the top five films of 2022 so far. I love a good list-making episode because I get to discuss lots of films all at once. Film critic Russell Miller is joining me for that episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes, and you can hear all of them in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthouse garage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at Arthousegarage.com shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about ArtHouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com/slash-subscribe, or you can email me directly, Andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at ArtHouse Garage and all those places, or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.